0: name. We speak these things forth. Let me know when you're ready. Our Father, I pray for the preaching of the word tonight, that you give us good fertile soil of hearts and minds, that you would anoint me fresh and speak through me. Let your word go out of my mouth as living seeds of truth, sown into good fertile soil, watered by the Holy Spirit to take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains until Jesus comes. Lord, let there be a deep, deep work. Lord, I thank you for speaking through me. Let everything be accomplished. that your will to be done. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Wow. Well, I'm going to preach, but I feel the Holy Spirit's still at work, so just receive tonight as, as I'm speak in you. Let the Holy Spirit just fill you and touch. There's a deep, powerful work going on. All right, I'm going to talk about the bride and the bridegroom. I'm, I'm really going to talk about the rapture tonight, more or less. I'm dealing with several things, but God wants us to be ready in these last days for what He's doing and what the Bible says is coming. He does not want us to be taken off guard and surprised by anything. I think that you're going to see some things tonight in a new light. Maybe some things you've never seen. And God's really going to speak to you. All right. What I want to open with real quick. I want to talk about Revelation 2 through 3. That's a typo. It should just be the churches that are listed in Revelation 2 through 3. Chapters 2, chapters 3, 2 and 3. And... I'm going to run down through them. They're prophetic. They have to do with from the time of the early church till now. And I'm just going to read through it real quick. But it's important that you know this information, okay? These are the churches that the Lord appeared to John and said, Write to these churches. Revelation chapter 2. The first church that he wrote to was Ephesus. And let me give you the prophetic meaning behind what was written, okay? And this is what it means. Number one, Ephesus means, the word means to let go and relax. The early church from A.D. 33 to A.D. 100 lost the fires of revival and turned to rituals. And that's what that speaks of. It speaks of the time period from A.D. 33 to A.D. 100 where the church was born in the fires of revival. You guys have heard me talk about Ephesus and talked about the great revival that broke out there in Acts chapter 19 and and how it was Paul's second visit there. You know, this church was born in the fires of, of revival, but around A.D. 100 they began to lose the revival. It's interesting in this passage that first love can be translated supreme love feast in the Greek and it refers to communion. A lot of people don't know that but it's important that we're not neglecting the Lord's Supper the Lord's Supper is the table that David saw in the presence of your enemies where your head is anointed with fresh oil and your cup overflows the the communion is the Lord's table and it's a powerful thing I don't have time to teach on it I've done a lot on that interesting that the Nicolaitans were mentioned Nicholas was one of the original deacons chosen by the Apostles but He got off course and he introduced heresy to the body of Christ that since your spirit man is without sin, that you could therefore sin with your body and still be innocent. And that's a heresy. It's interesting, sometimes even certain leaders start getting off course and introducing strange doctrines. You've got to be careful that what you're preaching lines up with the word. Amen? Smyrna was the next church. Prophetically speaking, This was from A.D. 37 or so until A.D. 312. It was the next church. And what it spoke of, it means crushed myrrh. And it was the ten days that were mentioned there were the ten emperors that reigned from Nero to Diocletian who violently persecuted Christianity. Smyrna was the city in which Zeus and emperor worship took place. And Smyrna prophetically speaks of that second time period there where there was great persecution. So it went from losing revival now to great persecution. Pergamum was the next church, and it means marriage. Historically speaking, Pergamum was prophetically speaking of the time from 312 to 590 A.D. when Constantine married the church and state to help his empire. This perverted Christianity. Jesus was revealed here as the double-edged sword of the word of God, to destroy false doctrine in a place known as Satan's throne. Antipas, who was mentioned, was commanded to worship an idol of an emperor, but refused and was roasted to death in this place. But Pergamum was the time when Constantine married the church with state, and that led into the Dark Ages where the Catholic Church, which is a cult, began to have too much influence and authority in the government, the governments of the world. That's what led into that. It led into the Dark Ages. The next church is Thyatira. It means continued sacrifice. This prophetically speaks of the rituals and dead religion of the Dark Ages. When the light of the gospel was snuffed out by the Catholic Church, Jezebel was exposed here because Catholicism is very much a Jezebel cult. Promises to those that overcome Jezebel are authority over the nations. That's what it means when it says to dash the nations to pieces. It's talking about authority over the nations. It's talking about having an iron scepter. It's talking about widespread authority over principalities and powers. And the morning star has to do with great favor. Fortune telling was widespread in Thyatira. Number five, Sardis. It means those escaping. This prophetically speaks of the time frame from 1517 to 1750. Regarding, uh, regarding the great reformation that took place in Germany under Martin Luther, who's a German monk, and God moved on his life, that he saw that the light of the gospel of Christ had been snuffed out, and he, he was grieved, and he knew that salvation was not going to come just because the Catholic Church said you were saved. It wasn't going to come just because you went and confessed your sins. You couldn't buy salvation with money. You know what I'm saying? He knew the only way you could be saved is by grace through faith, and he brought that back to the body of Christ, and God used him to split off the Catholic cult and to bring uh, Christianity back in the earth, and it was during this time, 1517, that this took place. All right. Number six, Philadelphia means brotherly love. This prophetically speaks of the great revivals from 1750 to 1905. Verse 8 speaks of an open heaven. Verse 9 speaks of the critics of revival, acknowledging that God is with us one day. Verse 10 speaks of the rapture. Revival is preparing for for the bride to arise and be cleansed and ready. Verse 11 shows Christ's nearness when we see these end-time revivals. In verse 12, and I love this, we are a pillar in God's house, meaning that we don't have to leave his presence. See, a lot of people don't realize that the church, the most important thing the church should be is a presence-driven place where God's glory dwells. God wants to make us pillars in his house where we are literally living in his presence. I was reading this prayer that um, Warren Marcus wrote out dealing with uh, revival, and he said just from studying revivals, he would pray, and he would deeply pray that the Lord would cleanse out of him any past seeds of sin, things that were planted in his life in the past, just deep rooted stuff. The Lord would cleanse it out of him. And he would go through and yield his mind to the Lord. He would yield his eyes and his ears, his mouth, his hands, his heart, you know, his life, you know, sexually, his life, his feet, where they take him, every part of his life, he would yield and say, Holy Spirit come live through me, clean out all this stuff. And he would do this every day, and it was something that he said he learned in the fires of revival. And those type of prayers that he prayed sustained revival in his life. The seventh and the last church to be dealt with is the church of Laodicea. And this prophetically speaks of our time now. I just walked you through church history the last 2,000 years. It started with Ephesus. They lost revival then it goes down through history and now you're moving into the church of laodicea and this was the lukewarm church this is the church we're living in right now it speaks of entertainment wealth higher education and spiritual complacency laodicea was famous for its wealth and medical studies its eye salve was made there and the city was known for its pleasures Gold speaks of being sanctified by fire. How many knows that we need to be sanctified by the fire of the Holy Spirit? We need to lay down our lives on the altar and say, Lord, burn out of me everything that needs to go. It's not just a matter of being born again and washed in the blood. That's wonderful. We have to have that. But after that, it's like, Lord, I lay my life down on the altar. It's no longer me living, but come live your life through me and burn out everything that needs to go. The white garment speaks of being made righteous. The salve in the eyes speaks of the anointing that God will rub into our eyes and give us spiritual vision. We need to be able to see and hear spiritually what the Spirit of God is trying to show us and speak to us. How many times do you read in the Bible where Jesus said, those that have ears to hear, let him hear? It wasn't like all the people in the crowd, their ears fell off their head and they were standing there No, it's that the Lord saw that they had physical ears, but He also saw that not all of them had ears of the Spirit that could hear what the Holy Spirit was saying. There's a difference. I've seen some people mock discernment. And, and, you know, they they talk about these, these, I don't want to get into it too much, just mocking what, you know, Pentecostals and people know about discernment. But let me tell you something, discernment is not physical natural common sense that's not what it is they think it is but some of those people are resisting and grieving the spirit of god they're enemies of the holy spirit they fight him and the whole time they're reasoning in, with their natural human secular worldly mind trying to understand the deep things of god and you can't true discernment is something where the holy spirit shows you and it comes with spiritual vision In spiritual hearing, it is not something that you get from the flesh and it's not something that is just your natural human common sense alone. Sometimes you look at things and it appears a certain way and in the spirit it's completely different than what the physical eye seems to look at. You've got to get deeper than just your flesh and you've got to get in the spirit. All right, this is what I want to get into is the rapture. Revelation chapter 4 talks about being caught up, come up here. You know, it's an open heaven. I do believe that that speaks of the rapture, but I also believe in these last days, and hear me, in these last days, the true people of God, those that are drawing close to Jesus, and let me stop there for a moment and tell you Matthew 7. Jesus warned all of us. He said that there are going to be many people on that day, on Judgment Day, that stand before Him, and they're going to say, Jesus... We prophesied in your name we cast out demons we brought healing and jesus is going to say to them depart from me i never knew you and these were the two things that he judged them he said i never knew you was number one and number two you worked lawlessness and what that means is this on judgment day there's going to be a huge host of people that thought they were walking right into heaven And they're going to stand before Jesus and their mouths are going to hang open in surprise when they realize that he's actually sending them to hell because they never knew him. They never had a relationship. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. They hear my voice. They follow me. They won't follow somebody else. They follow me. And the second complaint he had was they were living in sin. A true born-again Christian becomes, I'm going to just go ahead and say it, you become a supernatural new creation. You're a new creation. You're born of the Spirit of God. God the Holy Ghost lives in you, and your spirit man is made alive, and the seed of God lives in you. The candle of the Lord's been lit. You'll never be the same. And there's no way that somebody can remain in unrepentant sin and justify it because the Holy Spirit won't let them. They'll be so convicted They can't stand it. The Holy Spirit will take them out of sin and into righteousness, but there's no way that somebody that's really, truly God's child can feel comfortable living in sin. It would be the exact same thing as taking somebody that's grown up in wealth and prosperity and forcing them to live in a pig pen day after day. They couldn't stand it. They could not stand the smell. They could not stand what's around them. They would do anything they could to get out of that pig pen and go get a shower. There's no way that a true child of God can remain in unrepentant sin. Revelation 4. So my concern for a lot of people out there is this. It's false conversions. They've been told, come down and say some little prayer and you're good. That's not how it works. You have to be born of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God lives in you. You're different there's a conversion experience. If there's not a time in your life when you can look back and say, I was saved, man. I'm telling you. God touched me. I was born again. I was different. I had a conversion experience. If you cannot put your finger on that time, that's not a good sign because everybody that's truly God's child knows when they were born again. But Revelation 4 talks about the rapture, and this is what I believe. It talks about an open heaven. In these last days, all of us that are truly God's children are going to be living under an open heaven. And what that means is that the, the prince of the powers of the air, the wickedness that's in the heavenlies, man, it's going to be so heavy. Satan's kingdom is going to brass over the heavens. It's going to be like lead over a lot of people's lives. It's going to be like lead over geographic territories. It's going to be heavy. It's going to feel in certain places you go that there's a brass heaven there. It's heavy. But over God's true people and those that that are what I'm talking about, that are on fire for God and living for the Lord and and they have this prayer, Lord, burn out of me whatever needs to go. Set me ablaze. Those type of people, the company of God, the remnant, they're going to live with an open heaven over their head all the time. And that open heaven... The Bible talks about open heaven. There's angels ascending and descending through an open heaven. And there's a clear line of communication where you can sense God's nearness in an open heaven. That's why when people come to church here, you walk into God's presence. Why? The heavens are open. But I'll tell you something else. I don't know how big that hole over your head is going to be. I don't know. I don't know if you can take some kind of a measuring tape and measure it. How many feet wide? I don't know, but I do know this. One day when you're raptured, you're going to be pulled right through that hole. And that's what Revelation 4 is talking about. It's talking about the rapture. Now, I'm going to deal specifically with the rapture tonight. The word rapture is not, you know, in the Bible as such. It talks about a catching away. But they get the word rapture from the Vulgate, which was an old translation of the Bible. And they, it translated caught up. As raptured, okay, that's where we get the word from. I'm not going to preach on this now. The next time I preach this series, this is part four. The next time I preach, I'm going to talk about the signs of the last days. Okay, you're not going to want to miss it. But let me just give you some scriptures over this next week. I would love for you to read these scriptures for yourself. But the Bible says in the last days, there's going to be a great falling away. There's going to be great deception and there's going to be difficult times. And you can read about it in Matthew 24. 1 Timothy 4.1, 2 Timothy 3.15, 2 Timothy 4.2-5, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But interesting, in 2 Timothy 4.2-5, it talks about people that would have itching ears that just want you to tell them what they want to hear. We need to, I don't know about you, but I want somebody that will tell me the truth. And sometimes that's not going to be what I want to hear. It's going to be what I need to hear. Now, I'm going to tell you something else. I've sat under anointed preaching, and I've heard people get up and they're preaching against sin. And even if you're right with God or whatever, you're sitting there just feeling like you're squirming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You feel like you need to go down and repent. That's a good sign right there. Because the Holy Spirit is in that place, and He's drawing people into Himself. And that preacher is anointed and he's preaching the truth. But I tell you what is a bad sign, what is a very, very bad sign is whenever you can go somewhere to some kind of church somewhere and you can sit there and you're around all these people that are living in sinful lifestyles and they feel comfortable in their sin. That's a very, very bad sign. The Bible talks about concerning the rapture to be ready for the Lord's coming. How many times over and over, I'm going to show you after I'm done today preaching, I believe that you'll understand the rapture and there'll be something solidified in you, okay? But how many times did Jesus, how many times did the Word of God say to watch and pray, I'm coming like a thief? That means that you're not going to know the day nor the hour and, and you've got to live every day. Listen, the early church lived every day as though the Lord's coming was imminent. I mean, just right at the door. They lived every day that way. Whether the Lord comes tomorrow or in 10 years, we need to be living our lives like it's any moment. That's how you need to live the rest of your life. Remember I said that. You don't live the rest of your life thinking, oh, we got 10, 20, 30 years, you know. Don't live like that. You live like it could be tomorrow. Tomorrow. How much different would it be in your life, in my life, if we started living every day like this really could be my last day here, what can I do? I want to make sure that I've prayed the way I need to. I want to make sure the people around me in my workplace, that if an opportunity arises, I'm a a witness. You know what I'm saying? You're driving down the road and you see people and you just want to share the faith. I try to do that as a lifestyle, just throughout my day talk to people. Give them a pamphlet. Try to witness, try to be a light. But what if we lived every day like it was our last? What if we lived every day as though Jesus could come back tomorrow? Let me read you a couple scriptures. What Jesus was talking about his coming, number one, he said at that time the kingdom of heaven was like ten virgins. This is Matthew 25. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. Now, let me paint this picture for you. All ten of them were virgins and in the Bible, harlots were described as the people of the world and virgins were described as God's people. That's just the way it is. So when it's saying that they were all ten of these ladies were virgins, it's saying all ten of them were God's people. This was not five virgins and five harlots. And you've got to understand that because a lot of people gloss over this. This is talking about the rapture. It's talking about the Lord's second coming and us being ready. He said five of them were foolish because they did not have oil. All of them had lamps. Lamps speak of prayer. All of them had a prayer life. And all of them had some kind of fire lit in their life at some time by the Lord. But as the days grew darker and more weary and more difficult, that fire began to go out, and those that didn't have extra oil in their life were not ready when He came. Is this making sense? See, God's pouring out His Spirit in these last days, and I'm going to tell you that it's not just to feel good. We need it. We need the move of the Spirit of God to be ready for His coming. We need to be filled with His Spirit every day. This extra oil is the infilling of the Holy Spirit. But listen to this one. It says that the, verse 4, The wise ones, however, took oil in jars with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil or our lamps will go out no they replied there may not be enough for both of us instead you go to those that sell oil and buy some for yourself who is it that sells oil it's the revivals in these last days that's what it's speaking of i could read the rest of it i'm gonna stop there i think you get the point but see in biblical times let me tell you how it worked just real fast i am going to paint you a picture of jesus is coming okay A lot of times the young ladies that were eligible to be married would go out and they would be around the well because it was part of their chores to go to the well and draw water. And so if there was a young man that was interested in getting married, he may go hang out at the well, looking around, you know. And in that culture, it was a lot different than American culture. If he saw somebody he was interested in, he would go then to their father and he would tell them that he was interested in them. And the father would say, okay. And during that time, they would have a, a dowry that they would pay for that wife. You know, they would go to that father and they would say, Look, this is what I'll give you. And there was basically a contract made up that father looked at him and, and felt good about him as a person. You know, first off, that father wouldn't just give her to anybody. He would feel good about him as a person. He would say, Okay. And that, and that young man would say, Here's the dowry I can give you. I'll give you three camels. Okay, I got a cow, and I I can give you this, this, and this. And the father would look it over and say, okay, you know, let's do that. And and they, they would come to an agreement about it, okay? And then the young man would be brought over to the house, and the young lady would be told, this young man's looking for your hand in marriage. And they would set out a little glass of wine on the table, and if she said that she was comfortable with it as well, she would take hold of that glass of wine and sip it and put it back down and she would never say a word to him. And whenever she left, that young man knew, the father has given me the okay and she's she's okay with it. It's a done deal. Okay, the contract's signed. Then he would go to his father and he would begin to build onto the house. A bridal chamber. Hey Amen, let the Holy Spirit move. I can preach over him. And so he's building, he's working. Can't you just see his biological father coming out and looking at him? Here he is. He's, he's wanting to get married, so he's working hard. I mean, he's hammering and nailing every day, and that father probably comes out there and looks at it and goes, Son, that is the most crooked beam I've ever seen. You're in too much of a hurry. And if you're not careful, you're going to make some ghetto-looking piece of junk to bring your wife. So he'd go over there and get a claw hammer and pull some of that out, and he would help him. Then whenever that young man had worked and worked and worked, and he had finally built onto his father's house a bridal chamber, and his father came out, looked at it, gave him the two thumbs up, he would then go in the middle of the night like a thief. And he had some friends, this was the culture of that time, he had some friends that would run in front of him and would be shouting, the bridegroom is coming. Now this young lady had been waiting for this day, but this could have took six months, this could have took a year, this could have taken up to two years, and she's been waiting for this day. And so because she's been waiting, she's had a lamp by her bed, the wick is trimmed, there's oil in it, and she's ready that when she hears the sound the bridegroom is coming that she could light her lamp and go out to meet him and historically they would go to that house and they would put a ladder up to the house and she would come down and they would elope this was the culture of that time it doesn't take a lot to see what jesus is doing here he and his father agreed on the dowry. It was the cross. And Jesus has paid for himself a bride, and whenever you take the glass of wine and agree to it, what you're basically saying is you're accepting his blood in your life. And then Jesus said, okay, you've accepted it. I'm going now to prepare a place for you. And when it's time, the Father, nobody knows but the Father, the Father's going to say, it's time. And the sound of the bridegroom will ring out. The shofar blast will be blasted. And those that are ready, let me say that phrase again, those that are ready, not everybody, those that are ready, the Lord is going to, they're going to go to be with him. They're going to be caught up in the air. And just like that young lady that went out the window, they're going to go through the window of the open heaven over their life. That is a picture and type of the rapture where Jesus is coming like a thief. It doesn't make sense. I'm going to go ahead and get into some of this. But it doesn't make sense that the rapture would take place at the end of the tribulation. Let me give you many, many reasons why it doesn't. Most people don't even agree with that because why would the Lord catch us in the air on His way down? And that's the end of it. You know, it doesn't make sense. There's got to be more to it than just meeting Him on His way down, okay? Some people believe midway through the tra- the tribulation will be raptured, and they get that because of the trumpets, the trumpet judgments, and they say, well, that's the trump. If you read about the trumpet judgments and I'll read them to you tonight, we'll get into this tonight, that has nothing to do with the rapture. That is the judgment of God coming on the earth. That has nothing to do, I mean absolutely nothing to do with the rapture of the bride of Christ. It's interesting that after chapter 2 and chapter 3 in Revelation, when it's talking about the churches, that the church is not mentioned again until Revelation 19 when it talks about us coming with Him. Now let me give you some reasons. I'm also going to read you the parable here in a moment about the, the wedding garments and all that, but here's the reason why I'm convinced the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation. Number one, I just mentioned that the church was not mentioned after Revelation 3 until Christ came. Number two, and this is a big deal, because it is the time of Jacob's trouble. It's not the time of the church's trouble. Listen, that's a very important equation because the reason why a lot of people have really bad understanding about biblical prophecy is because they want to take Israel out. You would be surprised how many people right now believe that the church has replaced Israel and they they do not believe that God's going to have anything to do with Israel. And if you don't believe that God is is using Israel, you're not going to understand end time prophecy. Are you hearing what I'm saying? You have to understand God's purpose for the nation of Israel. And what's happening is, is the close of the church age is going to be the rapture, and then God is moving again in Israel. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. And God's going to allow Israel to be brought to its knees So that it will receive Jesus Christ when he comes. Are you hearing me? I know we love Israel. We pray for Israel. But I'm going to tell you Israel is not a godly place right now. It's the abortion capital of the Middle East. It is a place that is not godly right now. Okay. In fact in Revelation it called it Egypt and Sodom. Because of the corruption that's there. It's. There's a difference between Zionist and godly. Zionist is that they're just zealous in a patriotic way. They they you know, but they're not really living for the Lord. Most of the people there are quite secular. It's just like when God allowed 9/11 to hit our border. Did you know that there's not been a war inside our borders since 1812? That's why it was so concerning when something came inside our borders like that. But when 9-11 hit, God wanted to see repentance in America. But what did he see? He saw patriotism arise, but he didn't see repentance. There's a difference. That's why I'm talking about Israel. The Zionist, it was patriotic, but God wanted to see repentance in America. And what God's going to do is he's going to allow... This tribulation time is going to be the times of Jacob's trouble. It's going to be where God's moving in Israel. And he's doing a mighty work there. The church is not in that equation. Except those that have been left behind to deal with the difficulties of that time. And the second reason, or the third reason I believe in the rapture being before the tribulation is because Jesus warned us he's coming like a thief if he was coming in the middle of the tribulation, then once the tribulation started, you and I know enough about math that we could just start doing a countdown and know, hey, in three and a half years he's coming. We would know the day and the hour. Same with at the end of the tribulation. We would know after seven years he's coming. See, there's a difference between the rapture of the church, the meeting in the air. There's a complete and total difference between that And Jesus' glorious coming where his feet touch the Mount of Olives. There's a totally, completely different. They're described different. Jesus said concerning the rapture, he said, I'm coming like a thief in the nighttime, and you're not going to know when I'm coming. You better be ready. You better keep your lamps trimmed. You better have a strong prayer life. You better live the life because you don't know when I'm coming. But when he said, when it describes his second coming, he said, all eyes will see him. It will be like lightning from the, from the west to the east. Everybody will see his coming, his glory is coming. All eyes will see him and they will know that he has come. Those are two completely different descriptions. You see what I'm saying? There is no way that him coming as a thief is the same thing as what I just described with all eyes seeing him. It's describing two completely different things. You know what I believe the last trump is? See, people say, what's well, the trumpet judgments. There's no way that that's possible. It's just not. But people will say, well, then what is Paul talking about when he said Christ is going to come at the last trump? Okay, here's what it is, in my opinion. Remember I explained to you about the feast, the Passover The unleavened bread, the first fruits, was fulfilled at Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Then Pentecost was fulfilled. The next thing on God's prophetic calendar is the Feast of Trumpets. Let me read it to you. I love this. In Leviticus 24, verse 20, I'm sorry, 23, verse 24, it says, Say to the Israelites on the first day of the seventh month, you shall observe a day of solemn sabbatical rest. It's a day of rest. A memorial day announced by the blowing of trumpets. A holy gathering. In fact, in the Hebrew, that word gathering is like a calling out of the assembly. What it is, is the next Move of God on his prophetic calendar is the trumpets. Now, on, with Rosh Hashanah, when they celebrate the trumpets and they blast the shofar, they have these distinct sounds. They do this shofar blast where they do the da-da, and then they do three. Da-da, 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 and then they break it up. You've, you've heard this. Da-da, 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 and at the last, they do this loud shofar blast called the great tekiah and they'll blast it and they hold it as long as they can and it's loud I believe in my heart that when Paul said the last trump that's what he's talking about 1 Thessalonians 1 10 and how you look forward to and await the coming of the son from heaven whom he has raised from the dead Jesus who personally rescues and delivers us out of and from the wrath Here's another reason I don't believe in in God's true people being here. The Bible clearly says that God will deliver us from the wrath to come. It is not God's will that we, as His bride, are down here during the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. Do you hear what I'm saying? When I go through these trumpets and bold judgments, you'll see what I'm talking about. There is no way that you would feel comfortable even as a sinner that you would feel comfortable with your wife having to endure that there's no way Jesus is not going to leave his bride down here to go through and when when I read to you what's going on you'll see what I mean I'm going to come back to the trumpets and bowls but I'm going to get into some stuff that's kind of interesting does that help you about the rapture right there see the next move of God on his prophetic calendar is the feast of trumpets being fulfilled and it's the calling out the gathering at the shofar blast, the last trump. And then the day of atonement, that is actually going to be the tribulation on the earth, but we're going to be at the marriage supper. That's seven years. And then the feast of tabernacles is when Jesus comes back in his glorious appearing, where all eyes see him, his feet touch the Mount of Olives, and he takes over. Do you see what I'm saying? That is good eschatology because it lines up with all the scriptures, Old and New Testament. Alright. there's. I'm going to get into this and I have a reason. So just bear with me. I'm going to go now and take a turn and I'm going to talk about some, some weird things, but I'm bringing it back because it has to do with the rapture. You guys may not know this, but there is a lot of fascination about UFOs out there. Now, what, what are people in the earth going to believe is going to happen whenever the rapture takes place and all of a sudden millions of people disappear all over the world? What is the world going to say? <laughs> I believe one of the things they'll say is they're going to believe that aliens came down in their little spaceship and they sucked a lot of us out of here. That's what they're going to believe. And listen, that may sound funny to you, but there's some people out there, and I mean there's not a few, there's a lot of people out there that believe in UFOs and believe in aliens, and, and they're really fascinated with this. There's a lot of religions out there that believe in this, okay? Now I'm about to read you some things, but let me tell you that I do not believe at all in little green men and their little saucers. Okay, I'm not saying that, but I'm going to tell, tell you what is going on I'm not saying that these people are not having experiences. But I'm going to tell you what it is. It's demonic manifestations. It is not aliens from another planet, okay, like a bad sci-fi movie. It's not not it. What it is, it's demonic manifestations. Now, I want you to follow me through this because this has to do with the rapture. (coughs) The current UFO phenomenon. Well, I was reaching for the water that wasn't there. <laughs> all right, give me just a moment. All right, I'm good now. All right, the UFO phenomenon. Let me, let me just read through this, all right. During the reign of Pharaoh the III in 1450 B.C., There was described circles of fire, five meters in size, bright as the sun, appearing in the sky over multiple days. They finally disappeared, ascending into the sky. So this whole UFO phenomenon is not something that just started. Okay? A Roman author by the name of Julius writes in 99 B.C., in Tarquinius, that toward the sunset, a round object in the sky took its path from west to east. In April the 14th in 1561, the skies over Norberg, Germany, was reported to be filled with multiple disks that looked to be engaged in battle. They were described as coming from one disk. Many religions believe in UFOs and ascended masters. And what they mean by ascended masters, it's just weird. What they believe, they believe that people like Jesus and they put Jesus in a category with Muhammad and any other religious leader, they believe that these people arrived to some higher level and that they have ascended and that they're the ones that are coming back with the UFO visitations. Many religions believe in UFOs and ascended masters, but listen to this. The modern UFO movement began in 1947 as Kenneth Arnold flying his plane near Mount Rainier, Washington. He claimed to have seen a bright object flying toward the mount at an incredibly high rate of speed. He estimated it to be at 1,200 miles per hour. He stated that he saw a winged craft, but it was later reported as a saucer, and people started calling them flying saucers after that incident. They came in many shapes and forms before this, but after this, everyone speaks of them as flying saucers. In the 60s, the government felt UFOs of various kinds could pose a threat to homeland security. They hired a man by the name of J. Allen Hynek to start Project Blue Book. He left frustrated because it was underfunded, but he started his own research program. He never believed in the UFOs. But he did believe in the experiences that people were having. There were people, and this is a proven fact, there's people that have come in contact with something. They called it a UFO, whatever it was. It was a demonic manifestation. But they've had burns, physical burns on their bodies that would not heal. And doctors looked at it, and they did not know what it was, how it got there, or how to treat it. And it never healed. I mean, it stayed on them for good. When you start having a brush with this satanic stuff, this occult, demonic manifestations, it can be very serious. Bill Schnebelin was talking about when he was a kid, he got so deeply involved in the occult, it's unbelievable. His testimony is amazing. But when he was a child, he was a cat from a Catholic family, he went out on Halloween night, and he was celebrating Halloween, which nobody that's a Christian should be doing. But while he was out there celebrating this pagan satanic holiday, he said that he had some weird supernatural experience as a child. It was a demonic thing. He said that he felt all of a sudden like some dark cloud come over him, and he could see all these red beady eyes looking at him. And he said something went into his life that night, and he began to be fascinated and drawn toward the occult from that night forward. He had some kind of a brush with darkness. Do you hear what I'm saying? And that had a pull on him, and it pulled him into the occult. And if you read his testimony, he's written in a book, a book called Lucifer Dethroned. It is an amazing story, but he it led him down to the ultimate darkness, really. It was only by the grace of God that he got out of there. So let me just read a few more things. Sci-fi television has played a major role in the spread of the interest and belief in aliens, just as movies and television have helped spread the occult to the masses. But listen to this. This is really interesting. The professionals that watch the stars continually. Everybody say the professionals. These are the people that are paid scientists that do this for a living. These people that have the equipment to actually look into the skies. Those that are paid to do it, they rarely see anything out of the ordinary. Those that watch the stars out of curiosity to find other life out there are usually involved in some form of the occult as well and these are the people that are having these strange experiences by and large and let me read to you another couple things this is an interesting statement and it's a fact both the occult and UFO sightings seem to run in family lines as well as paranormal activity Both the occult and UFO sightings seem to run in family bloodlines. It is interesting that the first type of UFO sightings going way back in history were more in the form of sprites and goblins and fairies and things like that. Then they, they started claiming to be from the moon. But after we discovered that there's not life on the moon, Then they started claiming to be from other planets. Now, these UFO encounters are claiming to be from other dimensions. It is satanic occult activity. Now, I'm going to read to you. I've read all of that for a reason because I'm going somewhere now with some some teaching by Derek Prince. I want you to follow me because it's really important, okay? I'm not going to bog down on this, but we all know here, and some people may watch this and listen to this and And this may be new to you. But in Genesis chapter 6. It reports that fallen angels. And this is in your Bible. You read it for yourself. Look it up for yourself. The fallen angels came down. Some of them. And they came into the natural realm. And they took wives. Under themselves from human beings. They took human wives. They had sex with them. And they produced a race of beings. The Bible calls the Nephilim. Now. Now. The Nephilim were giants. And these giants were some kind of weird hybrid between fallen angels and humans. And the Bible says that they filled the earth with violence. Let me just tell you this. I don't believe they just filled the earth with violence. You can't tell me that fallen angels coming into and and populating families like that, you can't tell me that they weren't heavily involved in the occult of some kind, some kind of dark arts, and probably major sexual perversions as well. And it was like all of that was there, but God said this. He said he was grieved that he made humanity because their, their thoughts were continually on evil every day, and violence had filled the earth, and so he sent the flood. Interesting about Noah, it said that he was blameless before God, but if you read the Hebrew, it meant that his bloodline was pure and undefiled from the fallen angels. That's what it actually means. His bloodline was undefiled. So Noah didn't have this mix in his family with the demonic. And so his sons and their wives, God told them to build the ark. He sent the flood and he wiped it out. But I'm going to read to you some things here in a moment of how that has not completely stopped. Now, Job 1, verse 6 and 38, 7 shows that these, what's called in the Old Testament sons of God were actually fallen angels. And it's referring to them as sons of God, not because they're children of God, but because they were created by God. They didn't have a father, so to speak, okay? Let me give you a quick study on hell. Both hell and Hades is, present, is the present place of wicked men and women who die in their sins. Tartarus is beneath hell. It is where these wicked angels are imprisoned. In the New Testament in Jude, chapter, or Jude 6 and 2 Peter 2, 4 through 6, it described these fallen angels being bound in Tartarus. So that's where these wicked angels are being held right now. And in the last days, after the great white throne judgment, Gehenna, and the, that's the lake of fire. A lot of people believe that represents the lake of fire. God's going to take all of hell, Tartarus, and he's going to put all of it into just a lake of fire. Okay? So there's a different holding place in hell where people go that die in their sin and down underneath hell in Tartarus where these wicked angels are being bound and held because of what they did in Genesis 6. Jesus stated clearly, this is where I'm going with this. You say, Pastor Scott, why in the world are you talking about UFOs and the Nephilim? Okay, I'm going right here, right now. Here it is. Jesus stated clearly that it would be as it was in the days of Noah and in Lot's day before his coming. That's what Jesus said. So if you believe the words and teachings of Jesus, you've got to understand that you need to know something about the days of Noah because Jesus said, it will be like those days when I come. So it's beneficial to you to understand Noah's days. We all kind of understand Lot's day. He was a righteous man that lived in Sodom around all kinds of sexual perversions. Homosexuality was rampant. That's Lot's day. Jesus said it would be like it was in the days of Lot when he came And look at the homosexual movement of today. I want you guys to follow me. I want you to read this with me. This is something that Derek Prince wrote. It's very powerful, but I want you to get this information, okay? The Bible clearly indicates that intercourse between angels and human women did not permanently cease at the time of the flood. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, the Bible says that, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old men of renown. The Hebrew word for Nephilim is directly derived from the Hebrew word or verb nephal, which means to fall. Therefore, these are fallen ones, that is, fallen angels. They were, neph- they were Nephilim on the earth in those days, at the time of the flood, and also afterwards, after the flood. Those who were born in this later period, out of this unnatural union, were called heroes. Now let, let me stop there just for a moment. I talked about Gre- the Greek um, humanism and all that last time. It's interesting that this comes up again. Remember I talked about the Prince of Greece in the Bible? Now listen to what Derek Prince wrote here. He said, Greek mytholo- mythology abounds with descriptions of such heroes. They were born when beings whom the Greeks called gods, the Greeks called them gods, had intercourse with human women. These gods were supernaturally powerful beings who came down from a higher plane of existence. The Bible calls them Nephilim. They were, in fact, fallen angels. To give a few examples, Zeus the father of the gods, was said to have taken the form of a swan and united with a woman called Leda who bore him three children. On another occasion, in the form of a bull, Zeus had intercourse with Europa who also bore him three sons. Another god, Poseidon, the god of the ocean, united with human women and she bore him a son called Theseus who became one of the most famous of the Greek heroes. Many other examples could be added, but these myths are like a cracked mirror giving a distorted representations of events that are accurately summed up in Genesis 6 4. I'm gonna keep reading this, but I want you to think about this. When the children of Israel went into Canaan, what you what I promise you haven't thought of that given that you grew up in America and you grew up in American culture, you gotta understand the land of Canaan was completely and totally filled with witchcraft and occult practices. I mean, it was common that they would sacrifice their children to demon gods. They would perform human sacrifice. They went to pagan temples and participated in all kinds of satanic rituals, worshiping their demon gods. The Canaanites were filled with the occult and evil, dark worship. Now, whenever the children of Israel sent spies into the land, what did they say that was in the land? They said that they were giants in the land. Now later you read that King David had to deal with the Philistines, and the Philistines were of the land of Canaan, and they also participated in all kinds of dark, evil worship. Whenever David had to face Goliath, what was Goliath? He was a giant that had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. And the, and the Bible says that he literally was around nine foot tall. Can you imagine somebody literally being the size of a basketball goal? He was a giant. Where did these people come from? And it wasn't just Goliath, but it says his brothers were giants as well. Let's keep reading. As in the days of Noah, in Luke seventeen twenty six, Jesus warns us, As it was in the days of Noah, it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, conditions that mark the days of Noah will again characterize the period just before the present age closes. In Noah's day, the earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. Certainly, both of these features are being manifested, or manifestly reproduced before our eyes today. Moral cor- corruption and continually escalating violence. In Noah's day, too, humanity. Now, please hear this. In Noah's day, humanity was invaded by angels from a higher plane who made human women the object of their lust. Today, once again, the media are replete with reports of visitors from outer space. Sometimes these are attested by vivid eyewitness accounts. We can write these accounts off as fabrications, but this does not explain their increasing frequency. Another explanation suggests by Scripture is that the condition from the days of Noah are being reproduced, that fallen angels are again at work on planet Earth. So here's a timely word from Paul. If the above interpretation of scripture is correct, it imparts a fresh urgency to Paul's warnings given in First Corinthians eleven two through sixteen. Paul did not view the church as a little group of people tucked away on their own in some religious building. Rather, he viewed the church as part of a vast action packed drama spanning both earth and heaven participation in their meetings was not limited to human beings, but could also include angels, both good and evil. And Paul said that at the end of of that passage, he said, because of the angels, a woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. That's what he said. Why would he make a statement like that? He's talking about women having their head covered. And then at the end of all of that, he says this. He said, women ought to have a sign of authority on their head because of the angels. What a statement to make. Think about it. Now let me keep reading. I'm going to close with Derek Prince right here. In particular, Paul warned that human women participating in worship in church needed to be aware of the possibility of the presence of both good and evil angels. Their appropriate response was to have a suitable covering on their head. In this way, they affirmed that they were under the authority that Christ had vested in the church. They also paid due respect to the good angels who might be present and at the same time protected themselves against any impure spiritual influences that might have proceeded from evil angels. These instructions concerning worship which Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 11, 2-16 can be summed up in one word, reverence. Now let me say this about concerning this right now. It is so important that people have a spiritual covering. Some people act all prideful and arrogant and they think, well, I don't have to go to church. Let me tell you something. That's fine if you don't want to go to church. That's between you and God. But I promise you that you will regret it because you do not have a covering over you in these last days. You're running around in what the Bible calls terrible times. You're running around in terrible times and you refuse to have a covering over you. See what you got to understand is is that the husband is the covering of the wife. And the church especially the pastor and the elders form a covering over the people. It's a sign of authority, it's a covering over people, it's a spiritual thing. And when the enemy shows up, he sees that that sign of authority, he sees that covering and he knows he's not going to be able to penetrate into their life. And it's interesting that Paul talked about reverence. I've seen some wives, I'm not trying to be mean or anything, but I've seen them so disrespectful and irreverent to their husband. They have no idea what they're doing, but they're opening themselves up for some dangerous things doing that. As the Bible talks about a wife should reverence her husband and the word reverence in the Greek is phobia and it means like a fearful reverence like you would reverence Jesus. I mean, it's the same word. It's a fearful reverence. And you should show respect to your husband if you're not respecting him and you're being disrespectful and irreverent toward him. You're disobeying the Bible and you're opening yourself up for some influence that's not from God. And the same thing with people in the church. They better be reverent because I'm going to tell you, People are irreverent, disrespectful to the authority over them, and they don't realize it, but they're opening themselves up to something. By coming under authority, you come under that authority, you submit to that authority, and you're reverent, toward, you're respectful toward that authority. And by doing that, you're coming underneath a covering of protection. You know, John Bevere wrote an excellent book called Undercover, and he was trying to help people in this area. He was trying to help people come undercover. You know, this is where these dark spiritual forces like a Jezebel spirit and stuff, this is where this stuff starts getting in people's lives. They don't want to submit to their husband. They want to be disrespectful to their husband. And they don't realize it, but they're opening the door for these dark forces to come into their life like a Jezebel spirit. They want to buck up against authority in church, and they're opening up a door. (laughs) Is this helping you guys? I know, I know this information is controversial, but I don't have anything to lose. My life is hid in Christ and dead. I died a long time ago. I don't care anymore. I'm serious, I don't. But this is what this is in the Word of God, and I'm showing you all the scriptures. I know it's controversial and you won't hear a lot of people preach on it, but you need to know this information because in these last days, There's going to be spiritual things going on, like angels and demons, and you need to know, you need to be aware of it. There's seven different resurrections in the Bible. I'm going to give them to you. Number one talks about Enoch. Number two would be Elijah. But let me show you some. Jesus was the first fruit of the resurrected Christians. That's number three. Number four, at the trumpet blast. The dead in Christ will rise first and those that are alive and remain be changed in the twinkling of an eye. That's a resurrection. Number five resurrection is the 144,000. The sixth resurrection is the two prophets in Revelation. Remember them? They're killed and then they're raised from the dead. And then the seventh resurrection is the tribulation saints and also the Jews that died before Christ. It's interesting, Daniel records them being resurrected. But there's different resurrections recorded in the Bible. All right, I'm going to give you a few more quick things. All right, this is how I want to close. I'm going to close out with this. We're going to talk about the seals, trumpets, and bowls, okay? Look at the diagram. Just flip the whole thing over. It's the very last page. I gave you an extra chart that talks about tracing humanity, tracing the origins of humanity. It's really interesting if you're interested in those type of things, look at it. But it talks about it traces the bloodline of Jesus Christ, proving that He is the Messiah of Israel. All right. Real fast, looking at Revelation. Remember, I read to you the very first sermon that I preached. There was a scroll, and Jesus had a scroll. It's the title deed to the earth, and it had seven seals. And He began to pop those seals. Now, here's what I want you to picture with me. Jesus knows that the time of his return is near. And so, it's time for Jesus now to begin to pop the seals that's on that scroll. And as he starts popping the seals, all this spiritual activity starts going on. Now, the first seal, when it was popped open, it talked about a rider on a white horse that had a crown. Now, traditionally speaking, I want you guys to, to hear me about this, because this is going to help you understand some things about the rapture. Traditionally speaking, that rider on the white horse is the Antichrist. That's what people believe. Okay. It could be. But I'm going to give you my opinion, and I'm not the only one that believes this way. In fact, Jack Hayford, I heard him talking about this. This is just my opinion. But I wonder if it's not the Lord Jesus actually moving in great power in these last days with revival. You hear what I'm saying? I wonder if the first seal doesn't have to do with the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit and a great revival taking place in the earth. And the reason why I say that is because that lines up with a lot of other Bible prophecies, but also because if you look at the rest of the seals, it looks like that they're already beginning to happen right now before the rapture. Let's look at them. The second seal, the writers had to do with war and blood, and we're seeing war and blood right now. The third seal that was popped had to do with famine and death. We're seeing that now. The fourth seal had to do with death and hell. The fifth seal had to do with the golden altar, but it had to do with martyrs. You're seeing a lot of people right now being martyred in the earth. Are you seeing what I'm saying? The sixth seal had to do with terrible signs, like volcanic ash. It says that the sky rolled away. You know what that reminds me of? It's like a volcano eruption. And it's like the skies are rolled back because of the ash. The four winds, the four winds are, four is the number of the earth, okay? The first wind that you see throughout history is military might. But then it moved from military might during the Dark Ages under the Catholic cult. It had to do more with religious power. Then it moved from religious power to political power. Then it moved from political power to today economic power. And those are the four winds. The seventh seal... Now this is important. The seventh seal was silence in heaven while God was looking on the earth wanting to see repentance. And he didn't see it. So you see, in my opinion, the rider on the white horse, you see great revival breaking out. Then you see the war and the blood, the famine, the death, the martyrs. The terrible signs, like look in our day right now, look at the level of things like the earthquakes that literally are wiping out huge areas. I mean, these are terrible signs. This looks to me like it's the sixth seal. And so what I'm saying is, in my opinion, the seals could be popped before Jesus comes, and then the trump, you know, we're raptured out of here, and then the trumpet judgments begin. When you read over the trumpet judgments, the first trumpet seemed to indicate a nuclear holocaust. If you guys want to write these down. The first trumpet seems to indicate, indicate a nuclear holocaust. How far-fetched is that for us to believe with our places like Iran? trying to build nuclear weapons, that a nuclear holocaust is really that far off. But I believe, in my opinion, that the seals are going to be accomplished, and then the Lord is going to pop that seventh seal. He's looking for repentance, and then He's going to rapture His bride out, and then the trumpet judgments are going to begin for the first three and a half years of the tribulation. The first trumpet seems to, to be a nuclear holocaust. The second could be a space bus. And what that is, it is a nuclear warhead that has multiple heads. It's a, it's a rocket, but it has multiple nuclear heads on it. The third trumpet could be a biological bomb, a biological weapon of some kind that literally pollutes the waters because it says wormwood is referenced and it talks about the waters being undrinkable. The fourth trumpet could be an all-out nuclear war. The fifth trumpet showed that the abyss was opened. See, when you command demonic spirits to go and they go into the abyss, that's in the hell and that that's Hades, that's hell, that's another word is the abyss or the pit. But the abyss was opened and all these demonic spirits were allowed out onto the earth and they were tormenting people. The sixth trumpet references four powerful fallen angels that have been bound up and held for that time. They're going to be allowed to go forth into the earth and do whatever it is they're going to do. But it's like God has got them on hold where they cannot do that right now. See, you know what? The world may not appreciate the body of Christ, the true true people of God, but I'm going to tell you, we are holding back the wrath of God in the earth. We're the reason, the body of Christ, the church in the earth is the reason why this stuff hasn't happened yet. The seventh trumpet announces Christ's rulership over the earth. And then you get into the bowls. So three and a half years into the tribulation, the Antichrist breaks his peace treaty with Israel. He sets himself up in the temple as God Almighty, and then the Jews get angry about it. Then he releases his military to destroy the Jews. Three and a half years now, things shift, and it goes from just being the trumpet judgments. Now you're moving into the bold judgments, and the bold judgments are very serious. There's no way, in my opinion, there's no way, that Jesus would leave His bride down here to go through this. Let me read them. Number one, when the first bowl was poured out, boils broke out all over people. They were painful, festering sores all over people. Number two, the second bowl, the sea, became blood. The third bowl, the rivers became blood. The fourth bowl, there was such heat on the earth that it was scorching people. It was like the sun became extremely hot and people literally, were they couldn't cool off. It was just so hot. It says that they were gnawing on their tongue in pain. Number five, the darkness darkness begins to break out over the earth. It reminds you of the plagues in Egypt, you know. Number six, the Euphrates River dries up. And then number seven, there's such a great earthquake It is so massive that Jerusalem splits in three parts. And there are 100-pound hailstones that are falling on the earth. I don't know about you guys, but I've been out in hailstorms, you know, and you got the little bitty ones that weigh less than a pound. I mean, you're talking about ounces. And when they come down and hit you, it doesn't feel good. It can dent up your car. I mean, you have to go get your car repaired. Imagine those little bitty hailstones, imagine those things being 100 pounds. I mean, you're looking at, you know, huge. And there's there's nothing, I don't know what people think that they're going to create, to not, that that's not going to go through, but they're going to have to have iron ceilings, man. They're going to have to have thick iron ceilings because that would go through any house, any car, okay? But the good news is, Those that are Christ's bride, you're just going to hear about it. You're not going to be here during it. Let me read to you real quick the, uh, the parable that Jesus taught us about the marriage supper. This is Matthew 22, and I'm moving to a close here. Jesus spoke to them in parables again, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Now God has prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to come who had been invited to the banquet. Tell them to come, but they refused to come. That's the Jewish people of Jesus' day. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who had been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, fatted cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated and killed them. And the king was enraged. This was those that went to the Jewish people that they killed. Are you seeing this? The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. That happened in A.D. 70 when God allowed the Romans to come in on Israel. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. Now he knows Jesus saves to the uttermost. He's calling people out of the gutters of life. Okay? Okay? He seems to delight going into the darkest places. So his servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, bad as well as good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. These are all the people that have been brought into the kingdom of God as we're going out witnessing. But when the king came in to see his guests, he noticed that there was a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he asked him, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless, and the king told his attendants, Time, hand, and foot, and throw him outside into the darkness, where there be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. So then you have to ask yourself, What are the wedding garments? Without getting deep, the wedding garments are the priestly garments. You remember me teaching on it? The first layer of the priest's garments were white. That has to do with being born again and washed in the blood of the Lamb, and you're clothed with righteousness. It's a robe of righteousness. The second priestly garment was that blue tunic, and that has to do with the baptism in the Holy Ghost, the clothing of power. And then the third was a golden ephod, and that has to do with the glory. And what God's doing in these last days is He's pouring out His Spirit in such an awesome way. People are getting baptized in the Holy Spirit and in God's glory. And you're getting ready. What God is doing is He's preparing you for the marriage supper. He's getting all that sin out. He's purifying you. He's doing a work in you. And see, interestingly enough, that whenever the high priest changed office, and what he would do was he would take his priestly garments and he would put it on his successor. I mean, these were the actual garments he wore. He would take them and put them on his successor. He had to water baptize him. But that successor who became the high priest had to go into the tabernacle area and he had to stay there for seven days. He was not allowed to leave and see what's going to happen is when the rapture takes place great tribulation the times of Jacob's trouble God's preparing Israel for Christ's coming the earth's going to be in turmoil all these things I read are going to be taking place but the bride is going to have on those garments those priestly garments and we're going to be at the marriage supper with Jesus for seven years just like the priest had to remain in the tabernacle for seven days we're going to be with him for seven years saturated in his presence and he's preparing us to come back and rule and reign with him let me close by reading a few quick things there are seven judgments seven main judgments in the bible satan the fallen angels and then number two adam and eve number three the judgment seat of christ the bama seat number four christians personal personally in church government you know, it's important as Christians that we're judging ourselves. You know, the Bible says that. It's important that the church is judging sin and coming against sin, not not the person. Jesus doesn't want us judging people in an unrighteous way, but judging sin. You know, there's a difference. Number five, the end time judgments on the earth. Number six, the sheep and goat nations. And number seven, the great, great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment is the very, very end, and it's where people are brought up out of hell, and they're going to be explain to them why they're going to spend eternity in the lake of fire, and then they're going to be put in the lake of fire. That's the great white judgment, great white throne judgment. But here's, here's what I want to close with is the sheep and goat nations. Did you know right now the way people are treating Israel is determining if they're going to be a sheep nation or a goat nation? I'll talk more about that when I preach on Israel, okay? But nations that are anti-Semitic and they're trying to destroy Israel they're going to go into the millennial reign as goat nations. And you do not want to go in. Now, the bride of Christ is pulled out of that. I'm talking about nations. I'm talking about when Jesus comes back, there are going to be people that survived. You hear what I'm saying? There are going to be people that lived through the tribulation. There's going to be some people that those hailstones didn't hit. You know? And when Jesus comes back. There's going to be these nations there, and some of them are sheep nations, and some of them are goat nations, and he's going to judge them and deal with them accordingly. I wouldn't want to be like Iran on that day. (coughs) Because think about it. He's the king of Israel. He's going to be sitting in in the throne of David. He's basically going to be the king of the whole earth, but he's going to be like the president of Israel. That's a big mistake that they're messing with Israel, because when he comes, he's going to be like, you were messing with my people and my nation. This is my land, and you, you know. Peter saw the heavens and the earth destroyed by fire. At some point in time, the heavens and the earth as we know it will be consumed with fire, and it will prepare for the new earth and the new heavens, and literally the new Jerusalem coming down. Seven key figures the seven dooms of Babylon, and the seven new things. You can read over those. But this is it. You know, I want to be ready for the rapture. You know, I want to understand Bible prophecy. I want to understand the Antichrist and all of that. But bottom line, I want to be ready to be with the Lord. That's my main focus. I don't want to be focused so much on, you know, the earthquakes and focused so much on, on the seals being opened and the negative things. What I want my focus to be on... I want to be close to the Lord. I want to be winning souls. I want to be seeing revival. I want to be doing what God's called me to do. And when the rapture happens, when that trumpet blast sounds, I want to be ready to be pulled out of here. You know, people, I feel sorry for people that are going to be left behind, but there really are people that that are sitting in church pews that whenever the rapture happens, they're going to look around them and see some of their friends are gone. And they're going to realize, I'm he, I'm still here. I'm going to have to endure this thing. And there's going to be very few, if any, Christians that are going to be able to survive the tribulation time without being martyred. Which actually may not be that bad of a thing because, you know, being shot and taken out of here might be a quicker and easier way to go than some of the things that's going to be coming on the earth. But after the rapture happens... And God, the church, the the bride of Christ, is the way I want to say it, those that are ready are going to be pulled out. And God turns to the nation of Israel, and it's the time of Jacob's trouble. It's the seven-year period. When that happens, God's going to raise up 144,000 powerful, awesome Jewish evangelists. Some of them may be apostles like the Apostle Paul. I don't know. But they're going to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ in power all over the world. They're going to die for it. Okay, but they're going to spread the gospel. So people that say, well, the Holy Spirit's gone. Nobody else is going to be getting saved. Where did they even get that? The Holy Spirit isn't just going to leave just because the bride's gone. God's still going to be saving people. He's still going to be saving people. I mean, look at the 144,000. They're going to be saved. They're born again. The Holy Spirit's living in them. So I don't know where these people get the Holy Spirit's leaving. Nobody's going to be getting saved. That doesn't even make sense. But anyway, how many of you guys want to be ready for His coming? The only way you're going to be ready is to get the sin out of your life and get close to Him. And there, it's going to be trying times. It's not going to be easy. There will be a lot of temptation. There will be a lot of stuff coming against us. But if you'll stay close to the Lord and stay in revival. I never understand some people. Some people get in revival and then they get out of revival and I'll never understand why they, why they do that. Why would you want to get in God's manifest presence and then flee? The, only, the reason why a lot of people do it is because the Holy Spirit is convicting them of stuff, and they don't want to surrender that. They don't want to deal with it, and so they run away from the Holy Spirit. That's what they're doing. It's like a Jonah. You know, The Lord's trying to deal with them about something, and they're running the other way. But the way that we're going to be ready for Christ's coming is to embrace the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the best friend you got. Don't resist him and work against the Holy Spirit. Whatever you do, ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, do whatever in me you need to do. I want to be ready for Jesus' coming. Whatever you got to burn out of me, whatever desires I used to have, take them out if it's not of Christ and just change me do work, and embrace the work of the Holy Spirit, which means that there's going to be times that he makes you feel convicted. How many of you guys have ever been convicted? Was it fun? No, it's not fun being convicted. But I'm going to tell you what, that is such a loving Holy Spirit that instead of just leaving you, that he would stay with you till the end and love you and convict you and try to help you. He's trying to help us. Anyways, this way I want to close this and close out recordings. I want everybody just to pray this. Say, Holy Spirit, whatever you need to do to prepare me For the rapture, do it in me. Let your fire burn everything out of me that needs to go. Liberate me. Change my desires. Cause me to hate what you hate and love what you love. Have your way, Holy Spirit. I give you permission. And I desire your work in my life. In Jesus' name, amen.